Hello and welcome to the Hillcrest to Go Podcast Network. I'm your host, John Parker, and you're listening to the Neighboring Podcast. In today's episode, School Matters, we discuss school-related topics such as bullying, COVID-19's effect on learning, and much more. Today I have with me longtime educator Paul Smith. Mr. Smith has been a public school educator for the better part of three decades and shares valuable insights for parents sure to prove useful as you and your child journey through the elementary education process. And I'm very honored and privileged to have with me a good friend, Paul Smith, who's been an educator for nearly three decades. So Paul, introduce yourself, tell us where you've taught and uh, in what capacity? Sure. So uh, I did not get an education degree in college and decided to become a teacher a little bit later uh, in life and went through the Education Service Center 13 here in the Austin area, got my alternative certification in spring of 1995 and got hired to my first job at Wooldridge Elementary School to teach second grade uh, in the Austin Independent School District, taught second grade there for two years taught fifth grade there for three years, and during the course of that fifth year of my career in education, uh, the superintendent for Austin ISD, Pat Forjone, started an administrator certification program to partnership with the University of Texas here in Austin and uh, teachers that were wanting to become administrators, and so we were able to work on our degree and have an administrative internship, and still make our teacher salary. And uh, so I did that while my kids were small. And uh, in spring of 2002, graduated with my master's uh, in education and served as an assistant principal at Keeling Junior High for a couple of years and then left Austin ISD and was an assistant principal at Steiner Ranch Elementary in Leander ISD, where I've been since 2003. Uh, at the end of that school year, got hired as the principal at Mason Elementary School and was there for three years and then uh, was approached by the superintendent of the district to open River Place Elementary School. So open that school when it first started. That was a great experience. And that's also in Steiner Ranch, right? Out in the Ste- Four Points Four area. Four Points area. Yeah. Um, and so uh, made my way back to the Four Points area and have really been out there ever since uh, 2006. And so was at River Place for three years and realized that my heart was in the classroom and so left my principal position and uh, went to River Ridge Elementary School where I've been for the last 12 years and the first six years I was there I taught fourth grade, um, self-contained classroom, all subjects, and then for the last six years I've been the music teacher. Uh, kind of came full circle because my undergrad degree is in uh, vocal performance and that's been really kind of the love of my passion has been with music for all these years anyway so it's been a lot of fun to to be back teaching kids music and sharing my love for that with them yeah neat I can't imagine in that amount of time how many children have come through your classroom or through the school where you were principal or vice principal uh thank you for your service and what an amazing impact um I guess one of the biggest things being discussed currently in education is the effects of COVID on the classroom. 
So we're, we're coming out of the COVID, basically a two-year period that severely affected how kids learn and, and the classroom. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on how it's affected education. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're a couple of days away here from the day the world stopped. <laughs> you know, it's the middle of uh, March right now. I guess the Friday, we're on spring break. Leander ISD's on spring break. It was during our spring break two years ago that our school board and the superintendent made the decision following Governor Abbott's order to kind of stay at home to take a two-week break, and then that two-week break ended up being the spring break that never ended. And so, you want to talk about pivoting. I know that word's been used a lot, talking about you know, COVID experience, but I don't think anybody, maybe maybe frontline healthcare workers pivoted faster, but I don't think anybody pivoted faster than educators in providing distance learning. Um, if you had told me 25 years ago when I was getting my teaching certificate that I would be a web designer, that I would be recording myself teaching using a, a you know camera on my computer. Um, I'd be you know uploading things to the cloud for kids to access for learning. I don't I, I would have thought that was crazy talk, right? But uh, I think you know it was hard it's hard, been hard on everybody. Um, students, just the isolation, right? Um, so we were all so isolated for those couple of months until things started opening back up in, you know, May of 2020. Um, I think, so when we came back to school the following fall, uh, in Leander ISD, we did a staggered opening. And so we had kindergarten and first graders come back. Then two weeks later, we had second and third graders come back. Then two weeks later, we had, uh, fourth graders come back, and then at the end of the first nine weeks, fifth graders came back on campus for the first time. And so as those kids were coming in my classroom, because the way our schedule works is I see uh, every class once every six days. So for a six-day stretch, I'll have you know each class in each grade level come to my class for a, the same lesson. And so I was asking kids, if I told you in January of last year that we were going to go home on spring break and do distance learning, and you didn't have to come back to school after spring break, how would you have felt about that? And most of the kids were like, yeah, that would have been great. And then I asked them, now that you've lived through that, how do you feel about that? And I was asking older kids, third, fourth, fifth graders, right? Um, and they were like, oh, I wouldn't trade in-person learning for distance learning for anything. It's that human contact, that human connection between your classmates, your teachers. Um, I don't think it can be replaced. I've often worried about masks and and the effect that mask wearing has on the ability to read facial expressions. Do you believe that's been a, a factor? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, my wife, who's also a, a teacher, she teaches fourth grade at another school in uh, Steiner Ranch, uh, at, at Steiner Ranch Elementary. She was talking about this week that now that masks are optional and really fewer and fewer students are wearing masks now that, you know, we don't have fewer incidences of, of covid that a student who rarely wears a mask at all put one on so that she could talk to her neighbors without maybe my wife noticing that she was talking to her neighbors. And my wife was like, don't you realize that when you change your behavior that I noticed that? Um, and so, yeah, reading facial expressions, being able to hear I've had to have so many students repeat, and I've had to have I've had to move closer to them. It muffles the yeah, it the muffles diction. the diction. Um, being able to, to you know, I think research says that over eighty percent of our communication is nonverbal, 
And a lot of that comes from our facial expressions. And so when you take away half of the face, um, you know, I, I, I think it, I think it'll be a long time before we know the effects that this has had on our younger students and their ability to read nonverbal cues and to understand, you know, what, what someone's saying to you through their facial expressions. So I heard someone compare mask wearing and um, interpretation and understanding to writing an email. When you receive an email from someone, you have to infer yourself on what they're saying emotionally, right? right? The same with wearing a mask. You might hear the words, but you don't know what the person who's speaking those words might be feeling yeah. because you can't see their facial expressions. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, so just kind of anecdotally, I've had conversation with friends who have students of all ages just to kind of get a, you know, I work with K through five, but I'm you know, as an educator, I'm curious about how it's impacting middle school kids, high school kids, even college students. And um, I recently I just finished having a student teacher. Uh, he's 22. He's graduating from Texas State in May. And last year, he was talking about a class that he, an elementary education class that he had taken that was completely online, not in person at all. And he's, he said, you know, I've, I'm retaining more from what I've learned here during my time of student teaching than any of that stuff. You know, that stuff I was doing, it was a grade. I was just trying to tick off the boxes and, you know, make the grade and complete the assignment. And I didn't really, the learning wasn't there like I had been accustomed to previously, right? So I think that's probably, he articulated that in a way I think that maybe younger students would have difficulty articulating, but I think that's probably been a pretty common experience. The online learning, while valuable, is not nearly as effective as in-person learning. Um, not not to say that there's not a place for that. Um, I just don't, I don't think that it could ever replace what we get in person. Right. I agree with you. Um, let's pivot to another topic related to education, and that's communication. Um, there's communication that happens from the teacher to the parent. And then also the other way around from the parent to the teacher, how can parents do a better job of communicating with the, the educator of their child? I, I think when you're talking about, you know, educating, community is, is really the key. Um, fortunately, I work at a campus where the community is, and the partnership between parents and the school is very strong. Um, so I think you've got the community within the school, the faculty and staff. I think a lot of that comes from your leadership. Our leadership at our campus has done an excellent job of creating this cohesive community and creating a culture that expects there to be open communication channels with, with families, right? Um, and so anytime there's an issue that needs to be communicated with parents, not necessarily a, a single student personal issue, of course, we do want to communicate with parents the good things and the things that students can improve on. Um, but I, th I think there's a really strong effort from the school to communicate in various ways. Newsletters from the school, weekly, same time, right? Information there. Grade level teachers usually get together and they send out a grade level newsletter. Teachers may send out individual 
emails communicating things to their specific students and parents. But I, I know that as, as a whole, we tend to open emails, skim them, and not really, you know, comprehend them. And so I would just encourage parents to, if you get a communication from the school, take the time to make sure you read and, and, and understand what the email's communicating. Um, and then if you have any questions, respond back. Don't, don't just go, well, I don't understand what that means. You know, I don't have time to reply. Take the, take the time, make the effort to, to, you know, there to be a two-way street. What about the parent who may feel who may feel that they don't fully understand something or want to communicate something, but they're worried that they're bothering the teacher? Is there anything? Is there is there such a thing as too much communication that you might receive from a parent? Right. Yeah. I think I've seen. In fact, I just had a communication with a parent this last week. Um, they they sent me an email concerned about their student being upset about something. And it was, it was just a miscommunication. It was a misunderstanding. And so I clarified, and she replied back, um, you know, I apologize for taking up your valuable time. And so I think there's this misconception that by sending us communication, you know, there's a, there's a balance, right? There's over-communicating, there's under-communicating, and then there's the right amount. Um, you know, I, I think as far as it goes concerning your child— trying to get clarification on something is important and you're not, and we want that, right? We don't want you to feel like you're bothering us. Um, yeah, it's been difficult to teach in these last two years, but not to the point where I can't take five minutes to pick up the phone and call or, you know, send a one paragraph email. I think that's another thing too, is if you can't communicate it in a paragraph, that doesn't belong in an email, right? That needs to be a phone call, right? right? So, so a 300 word email might just be a little too much. Yeah. But most parents probably from your perspective under communicate rather than over communicate with you. I'd say so. I I wouldn't I I don't want to open up Pandora's box for my other educator friends by saying this, but I would prefer a little more communication from parents um instead of what seems like an echo chamber sometimes. Sure. <laughs> well, a lot of times I'm sure you send email out with information and you get very little response back. And sometimes it might not require response right. back, but sometimes it does. And you may not hear back from, but from one or two parents. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's shift to another topic. Um, one of the front burner issues on campuses all across our country is this issue of bullying. Help us define the term and then help us understand, as an educator, what, what's done to help prevent and to curb bullying in the classroom. Sure. Um, this is a subject that is very personal to me because my fifth grade year in elementary school, um, I was bullied by a, another boy in my class uh, every day, persistently, consistently throughout the day to the point where he uh, enlisted the help of other boys in my class. Um, and the adults did very little. And quite honestly, I didn't tell my parents about it because I was worried that that was going to create bigger problems for me, right? Um, my teacher was not a very kind person, and so um, she didn't do a whole lot to intervene. And it finally was just us boys working things out, not in a, 
not in a violent way or anything like that. Um, we just kind of worked it out and moved on, right? But it was, there were a lot of tears, a lot of hurt, a lot of anxiety for me in that school year. And so as all throughout my career as an educator, I've tried to make sure when I'm aware of a situation where there's a student being harassed by other kids to intervene and to put a stop to it. But I, I think that what I said earlier, persistent and consistent harassment, teasing, insulting, belittling, that's bullying. Um, calling somebody a name or making fun of them in an isolated incident, that's not bullying. Just because somebody insulted your child, made fun of them, pushed them, hit them, now, physical contact, the adults at school want to know about that. You know, if there's hitting, kicking, pushing, shoving, any of that stuff, we want to know about it because that's going to be a disciplinary issue on its own, right? Any kind of physical altercation. Um, without glossing over this, kids are going to call other kids names, right? I mean, that's just a part of growing up. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it should be condoned. I'm just saying that's part of of the pathway through adolescence. Maturation yes. process. Um, I mean, we do it as adults, call other adults names. We don't, we don't seem to grow out of that, right? Um, it's not bullying to me, and I think even in our, our district handbook on bullying, it's not bullying unless it's, it, it is a persistent, consistent problem. So if your child is coming home telling you that a particular student or group of students are harassing them or making fun of them or excluding them or saying you can't be my friend, that kind of thing, then touch base with the teacher. Um, at some point, we went from, in society, we went from believing what the teacher says happened to I believe what my students said, and now I want to see what your side of the story is at the school. I, I used to tell my kids, I'm going to trust what you're telling me, but I'm going to verify your story with what you know, I hear from the teachers and the other people at school. So I think that's a kind of, that's a good way to approach it. Trust, but verify. So I'm going to trust my kid. And I want you to feel like as my child that I trust you, but I'm going to see what, if there's more to the story, right? So open up that channel of, of communication with the school and work together to get to the bottom of what's happening. Usually at recess or at lunch where they have a little more free time and freedom to communicate. It may be happening some in the classroom. What impact do you think, or what role do you think, social media plays on bullying at school? God, there's so much more opportunity for that. Um, in fact, I was just talking with someone the other day about an issue of bullying that was happening outside of school via text message, because so many kids now, school-age kids, grade school-age kids, have their own phone. And so they're texting one another, um, and that's a whole other topic of discussion itself. But um, I think it, and then, so they create this problem outside of school in their own private time, and then they bring it up into the schoolhouse, and the parents want the school to intervene for something that began outside of school. Now, if it's causing a problem in school and there's, it's going on in school, then certainly it is a school issue. But if there's just talk about, it, oh, I heard this or I heard that or so-and-so showed me, that's not a school issue. That's a parent issue, right? And so this group of kids that that's going on between, then as parents, you got to communicate with each other 
and work to put a stop to it. If it's happening at school, we're going to work with you. Um, but, but don't expect the school to solve an issue that's a neighborhood issue, not a school issue. I, I, and, I, I, and the waters are a little bit muddied there, you know, as it kind of cro- passes back and forth between one to the other. So, Well, and that goes to the bigger picture of it does take a village to raise a child. You know, it takes the parents. It takes the educators. It takes the community. It takes scout leaders and, and, and other entities to help speak truth into the life of this child as they develop. Let's uh, shift to the issue of educational diversity in the classroom. Um, You might have a wide spectrum of aptitude and abilities within the classroom. How do you as an educator work both ends of of the spectrum in terms of kids who need more attention, kids who need less attention, and still move the class along together in whatever you're trying to teach. Yeah, that's that's one of the trickiest things about being a teacher is is giving the, the right amount of attention to whatever the ability level is of the student, right? And I think COVID has only magnified that um, because you start looking at when the last time was these kids had a normal school year. I wouldn't even consider 2020 a normal school year, right? So we've I've got kids in second grade who've never had a normal school year because I wouldn't even consider this a normal school year because of, you know, the COVID spikes that we had in the fall and then the Omicron spike that we had in January. You know, we're just now kind of coming to a point where hopefully there's not going to be more spikes and that kind of thing. But um, I think school districts and schools and the state, very rarely that you will hear me say something that the state did well, um, because I think the state needs to give a more greater locus of control of the district. But I think the state has done well in mandating some approaches to making sure that we're not over-identifying kids for special education just because they aren't learning as fast as their peers. Um as a classroom teacher, so in our district, we do this thing called flex time, and each grade level determines what time of the day in their schedule the flex time works best. And so that's a time for intervention for kids who are not where they need to be for whatever subject it is, and enrichment for kids who are working beyond where they need to be. And so the teachers can pull small groups to intervene with kids who need more help with whatever subject it is. And then they can also pull a small group to help um, enrich and help, you know, push those students who are advanced along even further. Um, there used to be this, oh, well, teachers just teach to the middle. You know, they teach to the kids who are right where they need to be, and then that's to the detriment of the kids who are behind, and it's the detriment of the kids who are behead, ahead. And I, I think the state has given us some tools and some guidelines, and then districts have you know, taken that and created some things to help teachers know how to um, help those kids. We, we ask three questions on our campus. What do we want them to learn? How do we know when they've learned it? And what do we do when they don't? And I think if you're asking those three questions, um, that's, you know, it's part of this philosophy called professional learning community. So if you're a second grade professional learning community, the group of teachers and other adults who help those students in a support role, special ed, speech, 
physical therapy, so forth. If they're working together to ask those questions and then you have a plan of what you're going to do when they don't learn it, and what do we do if they do? How are we helping those kids that are advanced be even more advanced? I think if you can ask those questions and create some uh, learning plans out of that, then that addresses that you know, diverse ability in the classroom. Excellent. In closing, Paul, um, thank you so much for the, the valuable information you've shared. But can you give parents, grandparents, caregivers two or three practical things they can do to help their child to have a wonderful education experience? I know that that, the, that group of people you just mentioned, they're, they're all wanting to know about what happened at school that day. Do not ask, how was your day at school today? Because you're going to get a shrug of the shoulders. You're going to get, I don't know, or mmm. Ask what the best part of the day was. Ask a more, you know, a more open-ended question. Tell me something interesting that you learned in math today. Tell me what you're studying in social studies. Um, tell me about the book that you're reading right now. A- ask them something that's going to cause them that they can't just go, I don't know, mmm. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I would also say, don't be afraid to communicate with your child's teacher. Um, And if you're very concerned with what's going on with your child, whether it's a behavior issue, whether it's conflict with other students, whether it's learning issue, don't be afraid to schedule a face-to-face conference or a Zoom call to have that interaction with your child's teacher. Um, And then... Uh, I would say be at school. There are plenty of volunteer opportunities. Um, they have, there haven't been as many in the last two years, but that's starting to open back up again. Um, that way you can be present and see what it's like at school during the course of the day, and you're not just wondering what goes on inside that building that I only go inside of to maybe have lunch with my student on a special occasion. What are some ways that parents and caretakers can volunteer at the school? At our school, we have room moms who coordinate a lot of that stuff. Sometimes the teacher will coordinate that. Um, When I was in the classroom, I would have uh, a sign-up sheet of different jobs that I needed help with from parents. And then uh, I would work together with the room mom to coordinate that schedule so that that wasn't so much of a burden on me. But if you just ask, right? I mean, that's the easiest thing to do is, hey, how can I help? A lot of, a lot of teachers I know like to have a guest reader. And so your, your child would love it if you came into their classroom and read a story to them and their classmates. Even your fifth graders would love that, even though they might be like, oh, mom, oh, that's embarrassing. They would love it. Secretly, they might not ever tell you, but they would love it. That's great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today for this School Talk episode of Neighboring, and we really appreciate your time and your valuable insights. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Neighboring channel on the Hillcrest to Go podcast network. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.